You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Go ahead and flip to Psalm 24. I'm going to begin our time reading God's Word for us and then asking Him in prayer to help us as I seek to preach His Word. Um, one thing I was thinking as you guys flipped there, the second song that we sang, Give Us Clean Hands, is answered by the last song that we sang. We, we, we want clean hearts. We want uh, our, our actions to not do evil. We want our thoughts and our minds to be pure. We never want to lift our soul and worship anything other than God, yet we, in and of ourselves, can't accomplish any of that. Uh, but in Christ, his righteousness imputed to us. We have pure hearts, clean hands, and we lift our souls to God alone because of his grace. Uh, and that's a comfort um, to us this morning. So I hope you're at Psalm 24. I'm going to read God's word for us this morning and then ask him for his help. This is a Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. And we give God praise for his word today and every day. For it will never fail. It will never fade. Let's ask God to help us today. Our great God, our great creator, sovereign Lord, we come to you as your children. Whom shall we fear? If you are for us, who can be against us, Lord? You have promised your church that you would be faithful to them. And so, Lord, that is our comfort this morning, that you will be faithful yet again, despite what we may feel when we entered this time, despite what we may feel when we leave this time. You will transform us by the renewing of our mind. Your doctrine will lead us to praise, and we trust you for that, God. So as I, your preacher, seeks to preach your word, your law, and your gospel, Lord, give us eyes and hearts that would see and love your word, that we would receive your word, Lord, that you would plant it in our hearts and it would bear fruit in our lives. Lord, help us to see Christ as our all. He who fills all 
in all, whom all things were made for and through. Lord, help us to cling to the Lord Jesus and trust only in him. And we pray that you would do that in Christ's name. Amen. In the beginning, God. This is Genesis 1, 1. There is one absolute. There is one ultimate. And that is God triune. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Never having a beginning and will never have an end. One God in three persons. One will, one essence in three persons of the Godhead. And there has never been a time when God triune did not exist. And there has never been a time where perfect glory, perfect love, perfect satisfaction has not existed within the Godhead. Perfect oneness and Trinitarian love. And here's the crazy thing. God decides to create for his own glory. And this glory is going to be praised and it's going to be experienced by his creation through his gift giving. The church father says that church fathers have said God has created in order that he would have creatures on which to bestow his blessings and his gifts. And most important to be understand about the nature of these blessings and these gifts is that God creates in order that his creatures would know this Trinitarian love and glory that exists between the Godhead and would experience his love and his glory through knowing him, a relationship with God triune. This is astonishing that God the Father God the Son, God the Holy Spirit would create that we might enjoy their goodness and their love and their glory. And all this began in the will of God, mainly between the Father and the Son, with the Spirit everywhere present, making a covenant. And this covenant was made before time and space in the created order. This covenant was about redemption. And it involves God condescending in saving a people before himself. All this is true and nothing has yet been created in the mind, in the heart, in the will of God. You see, in this way, salvation belongs to the Lord. And it is a gift to undeserving creatures like you and like me. God has brought everything into existence for what? To redeem and in this way, God triune is man-centered. This is marvelous love. God is love, and he has made us to eternally enjoy this love in whatever way we creatures can possibly enjoy that love. And in the reality that God has created, this is important, that love is not known apart from Christ. And so, regarding the context of our psalm this morning, Psalm 24, there's really no way of knowing exactly why and when this was written. But, because the poetry surrounds the mention of God's presence, 
this holy hill, his, his holy place. And because it mentions gates, many think that this was written around the time that David is escorting the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, 2 Samuel chapter 6. Maybe that's possible. But here is the thing. The real Israel, those trusting the promise of God to finally redeem, would sing this psalm as those who are in a covenant relationship with the one true God, not because they are righteous, not because they relatively follow all of his laws, but because they believe the God who cleanses, who forgives, and who grants righteousness, and they look for the one that God has promised in Genesis 3.15. That is true Israel. That is how his people would sing this psalm. And most importantly, in understanding the context of our psalm, no one has ever seen God. But true believers have always sought his face. And our Savior Jesus sings this psalm as the Creator King, as the one in whom the presence of God dwells, the one who brings God's presence to us here on earth, Emmanuel, God with us. He sings this psalm as the one who makes the unseeable face of God known. He sings this psalm as the one who brings his people into the presence of God forever. He sings this as the king of glory, telling those old doors to open up because redemption has been accomplished. With all of that in mind, I think we can jump into our text today. And my outline for us, I have two parts yet again. But really, this big question, who is God? Who is God? Part one, I just want us, I want us to consider the text in three parts, verses one and two. Verses 3 through 6 and verses 7 through 10. And just for our edification, I have one truth that we learn about God in each of those sections. And then I have two meditations, uh, the last one being the conclusion of our time. So, with all that in mind, let's look to the text. Verses 1 and 2 The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. On the surface, we can say the Lord owns the world. I had a conversation this morning. Brother said, God is the boss. Everyone understands that. Romans 1 tells us that. God's the boss and we all submit to the boss or we hate the boss. And this is true. God owns the world. He's the boss. Why? Because he made it. He made it. He has spoken it into existence, out of nothing. Every inch of existence belongs to the Lord. Every inch and fiber of your being belongs to the Lord. Every inhabitant, all life forms, they're all His because He made it. There's no realm that His sovereignty does not claim. There is no corner or crevice where He will not bring about His perfect will. And so this also means that no creature is autonomous. No creature can live life apart from his sovereignty. No one is free from his authority. All the animals, all the people, every place, it's all his. Why? Why is it all his? Verse 2. 
because he has founded it. He made it. This is very simple to understand for us. He founded it upon the seas and the rivers. And he descri- he's described here as this, this craftsman, this intricate uh, stone worker laying the foundation of all of creation. Our God is a creative God. He's the boss. He's sovereign. He is reality. He is. This is our God. And our creator's ownership of the universe assures us that everything that we have is a gift from him, from a gracious God. Paul uses these verses in 1 Corinthians as he's talking about Christian freedom. There's no need to fear meat sacrifice to idols. It's all the Lord's. But we want to abide by our consciences. We want the rule of love to guide our lives. But he uses this verse to comfort people. Hey, everything is the Lord's. There's nothing that's not his. There's nothing we have to fear. There's nothing we have to be worried about at the end of the day, even meat sacrificed to idols. We can eat that with no fear because it belongs to the Lord, uh, for example. And so David is actually pronouncing that God is king of the world so that all men may know that by the law of nature itself, they are bound to serve him. By the nature of him being the creator, every creature owes him honor and glory and service for he made them. We know the story though. We have sought life and we have sought existence apart from him. Nonetheless, we do live in a common kingdom where believers and unbelievers experience the goodness of God by way of uh, talents and gifts and opportunities that none of us deserve, believers or unbelievers. The rain shines, uh, I mean, the, the rain shines, the sun shines and the rain falls on the just and the unjust. In, in Luke chapter 6, God is described as being good to those who are ungrateful and evil. Uh, in this common kingdom, in this world that God has created, he is good. He is good. But number one uh, in learning uh, a truth about God in this section one, who is God? Who is God? He is creator and he is the sovereign king. He is creator, and he is the sovereign king. And this is important, going farther than all existence being here because he created it. There's more to say based upon our introduction. There is more to say. Reality exists. Why? Because God's plan and purpose to redeem and to save. So if all we said is that God is good to evil and God is good to those who who love him, uh, that's one thing we can say, but going farther Everything exists because of his plan to redeem and to save. In this covenant of redemption that we talked about in the introduction, before God created anything, God the Father gives the Son a work to do. They make a covenant, and the Son says, I'll do it. This work would include God the Son being the one who would incarnate into this world that he's created, into his creation, and accomplish this salvation of his people. And this would occur in time and space as God creates man in his image, which means that they're created in his likeness, in his moral goodness, but they're created in his image in order to have a relationship with him. And as soon as that's ruined, there is no seeing the face of God because that uh, goodness, that moral uprightness, once it's broken, we can't be in God's presence. So he creates Adam from the dust He prepares the Garden of Eden and he places Adam in that garden 
and gives him a law of obedience. And he says, Adam, you're going to represent all of mankind. He gave him a command of something not to do in the garden. And he is going to obey the Lord in order to show his love for this good creator and all of his wise purposes. I will obey. The Lord threatened uh, a curse if he broke it, and he threatened life if he kept it. And that is visualized in the tree of life that we find in the garden. That's Revelation 2 and 22. Uh, That tree of life comes back up in this plan of redemption. So here's where we have it. Adam's in a covenant representing all people. This goes well. Then we all are ushered into eternity and we enjoy God's presence forever. That's not what happened, right? Genesis 3, Satan is allowed to come in and tempt. Eve eats, tempts Adam. Adam eats and he has broken the command of God and the Lord shows up and what does he do? Curses the serpent and he gives a promise. He promises the gospel, the very thing, the very th- reason that reality exists, here is God at the very beginning of it all saying, I'm going to, I promise you a redeemer. I promise you a deliverer. I promise that I'm going to do it, that the seed of the woman will come and he will crush the serpent, destroy all evil and make things right. And this was a promise to be believed and received. And from here, Throughout the rest of redemptive history, we see these two lines. The line of promise, the seed of the woman, and the line of curse, the seed of the serpent. And we can understand what is happening in the scriptures and how people are really saved from Adam to the end of time by understanding this. People from the beginning to the end have always trusted in the Redeemer. Always trusted in the Redeemer. No one on planet earth on planet earth on planet earth has been saved apart from faith in the one that god promised it's important for us to understand especially as we read our old testament by faith the righteous of all time have been saved by trusting in the promise of a savior the seed of the woman not by their relative law keeping because verses 3 through 6 Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, somebody who's perfect. This isn't, uh, this, this, when we understand that God created all things and we were made to uh, be in his presence and enjoy his love, but we've actually lost all those privileges. There's a gap between us and God. There is no longer universal acceptance in the presence of God. God's holiness demands a sincere and pure heart. That is truly what it means to be made in the image of God. So where do we get this? Where did David get that you would uh, ascend the hill of the Lord with clean hands and a pure heart? You never worship false idols and you never lie. Where would he get this? He would have learned this from the Pentateuch. Because he would have known that, like Genesis 3.24 says, after Adam transgressed, the road to the tree of life is closed. Gates closed, angels, cherubim guarding it because no one can earn it in Adam. Not a single person born of Adam can look at the law, fulfill it completely, and enter into God's presence, take of that tree of life, and enjoy the Lord forever. Why? Because in Adam, we are cursed. 
all of us. He was our representative. He would have read the rest of Moses' writings working out how only the holy can enter into God's presence. And so God made a relative way of entering in his presence where he would put the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant where the Lord condescends and would be with his people only on the basis of his laws that would purify his people, that would teach them that purity is needed and blood sacrifice is needed. A substitute is needed. Forgiveness is needed. David would have known this. This is why Psalm, uh, our verses here, Psalm 3 through 6, the verses 3 through 6 are just like Psalm 15. Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Only him who walks blamelessly, who does what is right, speaks the truth in his heart, doesn't slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, doesn't take up a, a reproach against his friends. And on and on and on it goes. Perfection, holiness is what's required to be in the presence of the Lord. And so number two, as we continue on in verses three through six, a truth about God, God is gracious and therefore he rewards righteousness. We're gonna find this out. He's gracious and therefore he rewards righteousness, but the wicked he will cut off forever. But the wicked he will cut off forever. Look with me in verses three through six. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? This holy place is what Psalm 2 references. It's that holy hill where God has put his king, the great king on Zion, the mountain where God installed his king. But if we widen our field of reference about this holy hill, we know that the scripture communicates this holy hill with Mount Sinai where God gave the law to Moses. Uh, ascending that mountain uh, when Moses goes to meet with God and, get his, and gets the law. Ezekiel 28 describes the Garden of Eden as a holy mountain. Psalm 68 connects Sinai with Mount Zion, the mount of God's salvation, the temple mount, the presence of God. And these references that connect Eden and Sinai and Zion with the future Mount Zion that we read. Hebrews 12, 22 does this. Revelation 14 does this. And so then we can conclude that to ascend Yahweh's mountain is to enter his presence. That's what we mean here. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can enter his presence? Psalm 1-5 says the wicked will not stand in his presence. They will not stand in his judgment. And we know from Genesis, again, that the way to eternal life up that holy mountain into the presence of God forever, it's guarded by cherubim. We cannot enter. In other words, no man or woman born of Adam has a chance of getting to the presence of God as a joyous thing to live in forever. If we see his presence, we die forever. That's our dilemma. We can't get there through our own obedience. Well, why not? The psalm tells us, verses 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart can do this. That means clean hands. You've never done an evil deed. The next part answers that. Why would you have never done an evil deed? Because you have a pure heart, right? We do what we do because of who we are. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners to the very core, to the very 
nature. So who can ascend the hill of the Lord? One whose nature is not corrupt. One who's never done an evil thing. The rest of verse five, or verse four, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, who does not worship anything that is unworthy of worship. Has anything ever distracted us from thinking good things about the Lord? Have we even come to a service like this and just fight distraction? Be concerned about a whole lot of other things that we're really excited about that are gifts from us. I mean, church fathers are right. Our hearts are idol factories. The thing about being saved is we've actually come into a reality where we just can fight that. We realize that we worship so much. So even in, in those admittance, even though in those confessions, this isn't us. Our natures are corrupt and we worship about anything that makes us feel good. So this isn't us. And here's what the Lord will do for the person who is characterized by that fourfold, uh, that fourfold division, that a, a clean hands, a pure heart, doesn't worship what is false and had never a liar. Anybody ever told a little fib to make your reputation look better? Didn't tell the whole truth, maybe told an alternate truth or something that sounded like the truth so that we just are seen in a, in a bigger light. Any of us ever just had a desire like, man, I don't want to tell the truth because it's bad. Even that desire crushes us. We are evil to the core. We are not holy and perfect. We do not have clean hearts. But for the one who does have a clean heart, he's going to get his reward. Verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. God rewards the man who lives this way. The reward is eternal blessing and the reward is glory. Blessing, that is that they will receive the fruits of their favor with God. They have favor with God because they are perfect. Now, this righteousness is, is a uh, post-death, in-heaven righteousness, a vindication, a fully glorified, fully sanctified state. They will receive the fruits of their favor with God, and they will be vindicated, glorified, sanctified, based upon their righteousness. And in this way, the reason I say that God is gracious by rewarding those who are righteous is this creation didn't have to exist. So for him to make a world where people could be righteous and get his blessing is gracious. Now the problem is he has let us run as far as, a, as one could run from him. And so now there's a different kind of graciousness. This graciousness is really justice. Maybe I should have said that God is just and therefore he rewards those who are perfect. But verse 6 Interesting, it switches from this individual who meets these standards to a generation of those who meet these standards, a generation of those who seek God's face. Verse 6 says, such is the generation. So we go from he will, the man who does this, he will receive blessing. Such is the generation of the people who seek God's face. So we see this paradigm of the one for the many in this uh, from going from verse 5 to verse 6, going from the one who will and then the many receiving the blessing of that one. Psalm 1 is like this, the entrance into the Psalms. Blessed is the man 
right, who is perfect. And then it says, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Apparently there's one man who's perfect, but there's a congregation of righteous. The one for the many. These people who seek God's face, apparently they also, too, receive this blessed state, this justification, this glory. The wicked generation, like we've discussed in Psalm 1, is the line of the serpent. The righteous generation is the line of promise, the seed of the woman. And Psalm 24, 6 recalls a certain kind of people, namely the kind of people who seek God. And so although the details aren't worked out in this psalm, we see that the generation that seeks God's face are those who are made righteous by the one who can ascend God's holy hill. The details aren't worked out in this psalm, but seeing this paradigm of the one for the many shows us that the generation that seeks God's face are those who are made righteous by the one who can ascend God's hill. This is why we read in Isaiah 53 that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, that he's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. That's the generation of the righteous. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will make the many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. The righteous one, my servant, makes many to be accounted righteous. The Bible says this everywhere. And Verse 6, the generation who seeks him, who seeks the face, the God of Jacob, just like Jacob, this generation, they are the ones whom the Lord condescends, wrestles with them, willingly loses, and gives them the promise. In the event where, where God wrestles with Jacob, he made a liar and a cheat, a true worshiper. How? By giving him the promise. The Old Testament is about how God has condescended, has entered a gracious covenant with Israel, one that will bring forth the seed of the woman that will bless the nations. And so number three, God is the God of salvation, and his servant, the righteous one, restores us back to the image of God where we can see his face. God is the God of salvation and his servant, the righteous one, the one who can ascend that holy hill, restores us back to the image of God so that we can see God face to face. Selah. And then verse seven. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. So, What we have is this holy hill of the Lord where his presence dwells. And these gates seem to reference the entrance of that holy place. 
the entrance of that beloved place where the presence of God is. And who's the one that are gonna, that's going to meet all the requirements in order to scale that hill and enter without fear, enter without damnation, enter without condemnation? Who is the one with a pure heart? Who is the one, church, with clean hands, who has never lied nor wanted to lie? Who is the one who's always treated his enemy like his friend? The king of glory. It seems that God himself is the one that's going to meet all the requirements and scale that mountain. Seven and nine and eight and ten, they're both parallels in our text. And scaling this mountain, who's going to scale the hill? Who's going to ascend this hill? Scaling this mountain like Moses did to receive the law of God. The king of glory has scaled this mountain and into God's presence because he kept the entire law and fulfilled all righteousness. It is he that comes to this gate entrance. And maybe he too finds that the cherubim are still there guarding the way to the tree of life. Yet with authority and audacity, this mighty warrior not coming home, not going to battle, but coming home from the battle, coming home as a victor, stands before these gates and says, open up. Open up. He says, open up, you ancient doors. Ever since the beginning, maybe these doors is personified as these drooping doors, tired of waiting. Waiting for who? waiting for the promised one. And he has arrived with this angelic dialogue. Open up, gates. The king of glory is coming in. And who is this king of glory? It's God himself. It's God the Son who put, upon our, who put his nature upon himself. He accomplished the salvation that we could never do for ourselves. This mighty warrior is not going to battle, but he's coming home and he has a triumphant victory. He has keys to death and hell in his hands. All of God's enemies, all of the enemies of God's people, of his church, are done for because Christ is alive, because Christ is at the right hand of God. The Father, King Jesus, is the only one whom these old gates guarded by these angels would ever open up to. And you can easily imagine the cheers of Revelation 21 and verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be their God. Why? Because of he is so rich in mercy. And because of his great love, the point of existence is that we would be with him forever. He wants to be our God. He wants us to be his people. That is the point of reality. That is the world we live in. That is our God. That is our king who told those gates to open up. And he marches in and sits beside the father. He says, it's finished. I've accomplished what you've given me to do. And God is happy about that, saints. 
He did it for you. He's smiling down on you. You're the apple of his eye. And so to continue on here with our meditations, I want us to see the, I want us to see the glory of God in Christ's humility as our mediator. I want us to see the glory of God as Christ's humility, in Christ's humility as our mediator. In the first place, kind of almost start over again because we can't do this enough. God is so infinitely high. He's so infinitely lofty. He inhabits eternity in his being. And it is an act of mere grace, church, for him to take notice of anything that's below him. Actually, the only thing that's below him is infinitely below him because he is infinite. He is high and lofty. And furthermore, the distance between him, the infinite, and the finite cannot even be described with our farthest and most creative imaginations. But we see that creation itself is a result of God's humility and grace. The fact that God would create and be with creation is humility, is grace. He didn't have to. He's completely satisfied. God triune, completely satisfied with the love and the glory that exists between them. But in humility and in grace, he creates. What is man that you are mindful of him? We know that he's let us run as far as we can from him. And there is a separation because of our sin. There is a great separation. And our rebellion against him in Adam only results in our utter destruction and ruin forever. Never to behold the beautiful, infinite face of God ever again. With none in heaven and with none on earth who could stand in between and mediate a peace relationship between us and God. God could not do it as God alone, for he would not be able to represent sinful man as God alone. Man can't do it, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And saints, the Son of God shows up on earth, saying, Behold, Father, I have come to do your will. And he takes on our very nature into union with his divine self. And he makes, he, the king of glory, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, makes himself fit in every way to stand in the gap as a mediator between God and man. And so he says, I'm taking on the task. Fulfilling all righteousness for you. The penalty of your sin, he takes it on himself. Descending into hell, not to suffer, but to conquer. And he resurrects from the dead for your justification. Who is this king of glory? Who is it that has been surrounded with glory and majesty and power? Who is it that is seated at the right hand of God on high and all of his enemies are being made his footstool? Is it not the one who, while here on earth, was poor? 
Is it not the one who, while here on earth, was despised and rejected and persecuted and slain for you? For you? Is it not the one who loved us and gave himself for us and has washed us clean with his blood? You see, he is the creator and the sovereign king. He's just and therefore he rewards righteousness and the wicked will be cut off forever. But he's the God of salvation and his righteous one has made many to be accounted righteous. So that we are now returned by union with the King of glory to the face of God. As our Savior sits beside the Father even now, our life is hidden in Him. We are before the face of the Father without terror of condemnation. Without terror of His hatred of sinners. As adopted children crying out, Thank you. I believe, help my unbelief. And our second meditation serving as our conclusion is I want us to see the glory of God in Christ's position at the right hand of the Father. See, it's important to know that this Psalm 7 through 10 is something that no one has ever seen. People saw his ascension to heaven. No one has seen him march into heaven and take his rightful place beside the Father. And this psalm poetically describes that. But his ascension isn't just an aftermath of his accomplishing our redemption. It's essential. It's essential component of the sacrifice that he made on the cross. It's an integral part of his priesthood that he intercedes for us. Hebrews 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Not with the blood of bulls and goats, and it won't be with your blood, with his own blood he's passed through the heavens. And Jesus, the Son of God, so let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. He put it on himself. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to be forsaken. He knows what it's like to be wrongly accused, to be hated, to be mocked, to be poor, to mourn, to thirst. The righteous one of God came to earth and he knows what it's like to thirst after righteousness. But he is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace and look God in the face in Jesus Christ that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We are united to the one who has ascended the hill of the Lord. He took of that tree of life. He will never die again. He has the Father's full blessing. Verse 5 uh, Verse 6, what is, when is it? Uh, yeah, verse 5. He will receive blessing and righteousness from God. Christ has received that on the merits of his obedience and on the merits of his sacrifice. And in him, so have you. Hebrews 9 and 10. Hebrews 9 says that Christ entered once for all 
into the holy place, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. And what did he do? Saints, hold on to this. He secured an eternal redemption. As soon as the Lord Jesus, the King of glory, gets off his throne and stops being God, then you can stop hoping in the fact that you will finally be saved. But as it stands, he will never change. What he has done is final. It's complete. There is nothing that will stop the Lord Jesus from saving you completely. You will make it to that shore and see your God face to face. Why? Because Jesus has secured an eternal redemption. This is why when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God because it's done. And waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool. It's not if, waiting to see if his enemies would be made his footstool. Your sin, Satan, the entire kingdom of darkness has been defeated by the king of glory. And he's sitting down waiting for it to all come to an end where he comes to reign eternally. All of our sin is gone. All wrong. There there won't be a category for wrong. There won't be a category for hurt. There won't be a category for, you know, laboring in this life, feeling like it's in vain, but knowing that we're doing the right thing. That won't characterize our life. It will be eternal joy in the love and the glory of, in the goodness of God triune. We will no longer wrestle against each other. We will no longer have desires warring within us. It's just a matter of time, church. It's just a matter of time. There's one man who has entered the presence of God because of his righteousness. And the generation that trusts in that man, they have hope of eternal joy in the presence of God, and glorification in the heavenly city. Last few thoughts here. As we consider the covenant of redemption, in exchange for the work of Christ, the Son would be resurrected and exalted, and He would receive and inherit His people to enjoy that resurrected and glorified state forever. I'd like to end our time reading Revelation 22. And then the angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Though the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. For no longer were there anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is your destination, saints. Not because you can ascend the hill on your own merits, but because Christ has and you've been united to him by faith. Let's pray.